0: With roughly 8.7 million species of animals on the planet, debates centering around controversial biomedical research and agribusiness have a compelling impetus for taking place in all domains, including religion. On top of this, the ecological crisis of modern times is spurring change in how human beings view the natural world, and thus re-evaluating how religion can be compatible with a new mindful outlook of planet Earth is vital for people of all religious backgrounds. In Animals in the Quran, Sarah cleely from the University of Florida, partially motivated by these concerns, strives to place, humans, amidst a natural order that God seems to value greatly and lead towards a more healthy attitude toward nature for Muslims in particular, but also for all humans. In her book, she likewise strives for broader change in areas of Quranic interpretation and animal rights. Centered on the thesis that the Islamic tradition has always held animals in high esteem, deserving the same level of consideration as humans clearly argues that the Quran not only presents non-human animals as physiologically complex beings, but also values all species far more than is usually conceded. For clearly, there are three possible avenues for reading the Quran. One may, as has typically been done, read from an anthropocentric perspective. The Quran seems to be a message focused for humans, and its many stories and obligations can reflect this, at least for some. One may, as some strive to do, Look at the Quran from a theocentric perspective. The Quran is the word of God is not bound by human constraints, for those who read from this perspective. Yet there is a third, and rather newer mode, one may read from an ecocentric perspective, which will result in beliefs such as the equality of consideration of all animals. There is right reason, for clearly, to question the first two perspectives, especially when they result in views that put humans as the pinnacle of creation. Is God's justice not contrasting now with favoritism? Yet, there are still problematic elements that must be examined in the Quran. How should one view the possibility for Muslims to eat animals? What about the passages where God punishes humans through transformation into animals? The many analogies of animal attributes are often utilized to denigrate humans, and is creation not subject, muzakar, to humans? As she navigates through these convoluted issues, clearly begins by setting up outside context, taking a survey of how animals are viewed outside the Islamic tradition. Bringing alongside her four key medieval exegetes, she proceeds to examine non-human animals in the Quran in particular, first through the question of their inferiority, and later through particular stories from the Quran. She concludes her argument through an examination of humans, comparing the two and attempting to dispel those final notions that may still lead some to view humans as intrinsically superior. Beginning with her survey of views of animals outside of the Islamic tradition, Pleely builds her argument by introducing the questions of the variety of ways non-human animals can receive, or not receive, status as well as the diverse paths for human and non-human animal interaction. For the Judaic perspective, Tleili centers on the introduction of concepts such as dominion, the order of creation reflected in the six-day account, the creation of Adam in God's image, as well as the naming of non-human animals, by Adam. While these concepts alone may seem to set up Judaism as having a negative view of animals, There are likewise limitations, known to most, concerning dietary laws, which can be seen by some as protecting animals. Likewise, later rabbinic literature adds a mysterious and fantastical dimension to animals in the many descriptions of strange creatures. In Christianity, Cleely emphasizes the dual Hebrew and Hellenistic sources upon which Christianity draws its doctrines of man and the rest of creation. This is particularly important as it sets the stage for her critique of the medieval Muslim exegetes she examines later on, who likewise can often draw on Hellenistic ideas. Her survey through Christianity draws upon a handful of New Testament verses, as well as the introduction of central theological writers such as Thomas Aquinas from the Middle Ages, who she will return to later. Pleely sees a shift between Judaism and Christianity, reflected in the thought of Aquinas, who she describes as simply seeing animals as devoid of reason. And, naturally enslaved. Turning briefly to Buddhism, Cleely examines the concepts of reincarnation and nonviolence as tenets of this religion. In particular, reincarnation adds a moral and meritorious dimension to animals, and reflects a dynamic system where one can climb the hierarchy of creation. However, that very hierarchy of creation is still evident in Buddhism for Cleely, as being demoted to an animal has the connotation of punishment. Jainism extends the boundaries of life, and continues the theme of hierarchy, but sees the foundation for this hierarchy in the modes of sensation. This leads many followers of this religion to practice vegetarianism and set up animal hospitals, and many believers will even fast to death. Tlili does not neglect modern philosophical trends, such as what she labels as utilitarianism advocated by Peter Singer and animal rights advocated by Tom Regan. The introduction of these two movements adds in key questions as she continues into the discussion of animals, such as the seeming inaccessibility of animal minds, which the Quran can solve through the omniscience of God, and the boundary of where to draw the line, reflected in the debate over mental capacities. cleely in her analysis of the Quranic view of animals likewise does not focus solely on the Quran, but in keeping with a more traditional Muslim approach, as the Quran, the Prophet, his companions, and some of those who follow are all seen as authorities by many, includes the thoughts of medieval exegetes, who she does not have qualms over critiquing. Oftentimes these medieval exegetes fall into a linear atomistic approach which she critiques in similar fashion as Amina Wadud does in her book Quran and Woman. In order to include these figures, Pleely makes certain to introduce key relevant notions that can explain many of the occasions when these medieval exegetes seem to take negative views of animals. Anthropocentrism, which she defines as the seemingly inescapable fact that humans can see the world only from human lenses can often lead to feature separation, affirming that humans have abstract reasoning, conscience, free will, an immortal soul, all these that are empirically impossible to verify in animals or humans. Hellenistic thought in particular introduces the notion of the great chain of being, which she explains consisting of from the meagerest kind of existence, which barely escaped non-existence, through every possible grade up to the highest possible kind of creature. Two other notions introduced include hierarchy and egalitarianism, which do not seem to factor in strongly with her later arguments. Her four exegetes she chooses to draw upon are Ibn Jar al-Tabari from the 800s, Fakr al-Din al-Razi from the 1100s, Abu Abd Allah al-Kertubi from the 1200s, and Ismail ibn Kathir from the 1300s. Before diving into Part 2 of the book, for those who are unfamiliar with the Quranic passages most known for dealing with animals, a few brief quotations from Alan Jones's translation of the Quran will assist in understanding the arguments that follow. From Surah, or the ants. The hosts of Solomon were rounded up for him. Jinn, men and birds. And they were urged on. Then where they came to the Valley of Ants an ant said, O ants, Enter your dwellings. And Solomon and his hosts will not crush you. When they do not see, you. He smiled, laughing at its speech, and said. My Lord, press me to be thankful for your blessings. Which you bestowed on me and on my parents. And, press me, to do a righteous thing that you approve of. And admit me, by your mercy, among your righteous servants. He reviewed the birds, and then he said. Why is it that I do not see the hupu? Is it amongst those who are absent? I shall punish it severely or I shall slaughter it. Or else it must bring me clear authority. The hupu was not long in coming and said. I have picked up news that you have not picked up. And I have brought you sure tidings from Saba. I found a woman ruling them. She has been given, some, of everything. And she has a mighty throne. I found her and her people prostrating themselves to the sun and not to God. Satan has made their deeds seem fair to them. And has turned them from the way. And so they are not guided aright, So that they do not prostrate themselves to God. Who brings forth what is hidden in the heavens and on earth. He knows what you conceal and what you make public. God. There is no God except Him. The Lord of the mighty throne. He said, We shall see whether you have spoken the truth. Or are one of the liars. Take this letter of mine and drop it before them. Then turn away and see what they return. From Surah 6. They say, why has no sign from his Lord been sent down to him? Say, God is able to send down a sign. But most of them do not know. There is no beast in the earth nor bird that flies with its wings. But they are communities like you We have neglected nothing in the record. Then they will be rounded up to their Lord. From Surah 24. Have you not seen that God is glorified? by all who are in the heavens and the earth. And by the birds as they spread their wings? Each, he knows it's praying and it's glorifying. God is aware of what they do. To God belongs the sovereignty of the heavens and the earth. And to God is the journeying. Have you not seen that God drives along clouds? And then brings them together? And makes them a mass? As Fleely continues into Part 2 of her book, she poses the question of whether animals are indeed inferior. Utilizing an argument centering around the notion of the world of the unseen she certainly makes one question their beliefs about animals. After all, one cannot see into an animal's head usually. Is there a world of speech that one cannot hear? Likewise, one must also consider which specific animals are mentioned, because universalizing the principles applied to one is faulty logic and becomes clear when one cannot do all the same things with a camel that one can do with a polar bear. Focusing on the theme of servitude, Cleely discusses the abstract Quranic themes of Tadlil and Tasker, as well as the concrete Quranic themes involving how exactly animals can be used. In this section, she argues for a distinction between mere serviceability, and the next step of dominion. Dominion is a biblical concept that for Cleely, is not present in the Quran. The Quran does not define animals in relation to humans, and it is important to remember that sovereign authority is always with God. In addition, it is important to emphasize that actual power is in the hands of God, who has subdued camels as opposed to humans, an element she pursues further as a paradox. Proceeding through the many concrete ways animals can be used, Cleely points out some interesting elements involved in these. For example, when considering material benefits, such as food, this is not an obligation from the Quran, but rather mere permission. What does this mean for debates over vegetarianism? Likewise, animals that bear loads are much stronger than humans, and thus deserve a degree of respect reinforced in stories such as those of Umar. The second caliph. At the center of all these benefits, one can, as Al Razi argues, see them all as related to God. Not only are they signs of God's creation, but they assist in making humans stronger for the acts of devotion they may perform. This leads into questions such as the permanence of this state of lower servitude to humans, which from the Quran's perspective is indeed temporary. For example, wind may assist humans in sailing, but can be turned against them as a tool of destruction. From the story of the elephants and flying creatures which attack a ruler of Yemen when he attempts to bring an army against the Kaaba, notice the elephants are his own, to the accounts of Nimrod and mosquitoes devouring the flesh and blood of his soldiers, to the more well-known accounts of Pharaoh and the plagues, all of these accounts show how animals are not always at the service of humans, but rather are ultimately under God. All of this should reinforce the element of mercy and kindness involved in God's interactions with humans, especially when they receive benefits. Two key elements often brought up when one surveys discussions of animal rights and Islam are the notion of istaguf, often translated in verses as vice-regency, and mask, or metamorphosis. Regarding the first, clearly devotes a significant amount of research to demonstrating that this notion of vice-regency is a later concept added on due to the political dimension associated with the word, stemming from Arabian politics, considering the connection of the word with the position of caliph. Regarding the second, Cleely does not shy away from questioning whether this is meant to be a spiritual transformation of humans into animals, as a symbolic story. This seems to have some strength as an argument, and it is not entirely dismissed. After all, radical skepticism of the world would be a result if animals were often humans in disguise. However, more central to Cleely's argument is her reference to the interpretation of medieval exegetes of this passage as seeing the process itself as the punishment, rather than what the human is being transformed into. Thus, from Thleli's perspective, animals cannot be seen as lower simply because humans are transformed into them as punishment. As Thleli turns to focus in depth on animals, rather than the theme surveyed above, she references the well known Quranic account of animals involving the ants, the hoopoe bird, and Solomon. These accounts, she will argue, demonstrate language, rationality, spirituality, and morality present in at least two groups of animals. For example, in the interaction between the hoopoe bird and Solomon, The bird demonstrates a keen knowledge of political understanding, and Solomon even says that the bird has the possibility of being a liar. The ants show a remarkable awareness of their environment and the threat facing their colony, Solomon, and demonstrate the ability to reason as to how best to respond to that threat. The ants worry about their ability to praise God, and even have a degree of ant-centrism, seeing themselves as better than humans, such as Solomon, who the ants see as unperceiving. There are indeed other Quranic verses that seem to introduce these ideas, such as 638, that can be read as equating animals and humans, peoples like you. Figures such as Ibn Abbas point to the fact that animals have knowledge of, bear witness to, glorify, and praise God. In particular, this discussion of morality of animal action raises questions of resurrection of animals, which the Islamic tradition, clearly seems to say, does not have a definitive view. Is heaven a temporary location for animals? Are the animals that are in heaven new ones or ones that had a previous earthly existence? In particular, the legal dimension involving injuries animals cause and how that affects the moral status of their owners leave many unanswered questions at the end of this section. Yet, one should realize that human criteria can be lacking, in particular size, 226, God does not disdain to coin the similitude of a gnat or any smaller animal. Insects, in fact, are much more prominent in the Quran than other animals. One will read frequently about flies, spiders, bees, and ants, but not so much lions. Humans are not valued more than animals, Pleely will argue, by God. God in fact destroys the entire tribe of Thamud because of their assault of Ashi Camel. Pleely, as mentioned earlier, likewise examines human beings, and finds that the debate over earthly blessings can correspond to the debate over more blessings to humans. In summary, many people on earth seem to receive great wealth and prosperity. But not be Muslim or particularly devout. Thus, the great benefits they receive are not because of some intrinsic merit. With reference to humans, humans may indeed be blessed abundantly. Yet, this is not because of some intrinsic merit of humans, but rather God's fatal to humans is to emphasize God's generosity and kindness. In addition, humans are frequently portrayed in a negative manner as weak, despairing, ingrate, hasty, grudging, niggardly, desperate, impatient, restless, fretful, and ungrateful do humans really seem so much better than animals? Yet, there is still the question of ultimate destiny. It seems entirely plausible, and clearly leaves this open, that humans have the potential to be much greater than animals. Humans are endowed with potential or the latent ability to become better beings, they neither start off as purely flawless, the Quran often highlights their humble origin, despised fluid, black mud altered, etc., nor after undertaking their life journeys do they necessarily become utterly meritorious. At the end of all of this, one still must ask, why are non-human animals not given the opportunity to earn eternal life in heaven as humans are? To proceed into a more in-depth analysis of her arguments, one concept introduced in her discussion of relevant notions is the distinction between angels and humans. She points out that for many medieval exegetes, the reason angels may be deemed higher is because of their moral excellence, reflected in total obedience to God, and their natural predisposition, reflected in an inability to sin. Cleely rightly points out that these two features, depending on one's view of animals, should lead to also placing animals as higher than humans. This argument is particularly strong, and deserves much greater attention, in particular drawing upon aspects of angelology. Just as Cleely does not shy away from dedicating an entire section to humans in a book on animals, greater reflection on angelology would have served to better dispel notions of the great chain of being. The distinction between angels and humans as spiritual and material seems to reflect some sort of hierarchy. Could there be a hierarchy with animals and humans and angels in two separate categories, according to the Quran? Another point that deserved much greater elaboration, particularly because of the strength of the points being made comes from the recounting of the story of the king of the jinn from Al safas 22nd epistle. This story, which involves a legal suit between animals and humans because of the oppression of animals by humans, shows a remarkably nuanced view of animals. At the very least, this story shows how greatly some medieval writers considered the question of animals. Are there similar stories to this to be found? Two of Fleely's strongest themes for supporting her argument are the discussion of modes of reading the Quran and utilizing animals against humans. Regarding the first, the emphasis on an anthropocentric perspective for many Muslim thinkers shows why they may neglect animals in many situations, in interpreting Quranic verses, or pain animals in a negative light. Yet, there is still the question of whether the theocentric or anthropocentric perspective is best, and even more basic, which is the perspective the Quran takes. The Quran does seem to be a message for humans and focused on humans, so is an anthropocentric reading not justified? Regarding the second theme, Pleely draws upon a variety of Quran and extra-Quranic sources which show animals being used against humans by God. This shows that humans are not at the top permanently, and rather God is the one in control ultimately. One potential counterargument not addressed by Pleely is the aspect of the animal passivity in many of these scenes. The creatures seem to be treated similar to wind or other agents of divine wrath, and their thought process is not described. This could merely be explained using the theme of anthropocentrism, this text is meant for humans, and so on, but that does not seem to be entirely satisfying. There are many other elements that Pleely utilizes to her advantage. The variety of sources only provides greater support for her arguments, considering that she is not reading the Quran in isolation. At the same time, she does not shy away from critiquing the medieval exegetes for their linear atomistic approach. One cannot simply view animals one way in one verse and then an entirely different way in another verse. A holistic perspective seems to inevitably lead to support for the elevated status of animals. Emphasizing the narrowness of certain texts regarding which animals are being considered is a strong and valid argument one cannot take the special relationship between camels and humans and extrapolate it to all of creation as being under total dominion of humans. The Quran makes certain to point to animals as signs of God's power and the wondrous nature of creation, and this serves to elevate the status of animals and show they should be treated in keeping with this special divine connection. Accounts such as the worm story, where Moses is given insight into God's care for a worm, and even hears the worm speaking, reinforce this point. The many occasions where humans are depicted negatively likewise should give readers of the Quran pause before they see themselves as the pinnacle of creation. Yet, a question Fleeley herself acknowledges is the possibility that humans might have a higher destiny, or the potential to be better than other animals. Possibly if one were to freeze the earth at this very instant and tally up animals and humans with respect to their connection with God, animals would fare better. But the many debates over the immortality of animals, their judgment, their religious obligations and their position in heaven that Fleely references seem to leave the waters very muddy. There are a handful of particular arguments that seem to be mostly unconvincing, which range in their degree of importance to the broader message of Fleely. Fleely argues for a distinction between dominion and servitude that does not seem to be evident in the Quran. Yes, it is possible to say sovereign authority over animals always lies with God from the perspective of the Quran. But can God not always have dominion, and likewise be relegating that dominion? in a restricted sense, to humans? Discarding the concept of dominion does not seem to be warranted, considering the special position God evidently places man over in regard to creatures such as the camel, which clearly has no qualms acknowledging in a qualified sense. Verses that claim vice Regency clearly successfully argues against utilizing etymology and tracing the definition of the word historically, the connection to Arabian power struggles is well founded. But exactly where the line is drawn— especially to contrast it with the concept of biblical dominion that Thleely strongly believes is not present, requires further clarification. In addition, the arguments regarding metamorphosis into lower animals are valid to some extent. Yes, humans have to retain some degree of who they are when they are transformed, otherwise it would not be a punishment. Possibly the very process of transformation is indeed the punishment, involving pain. Perhaps this is merely a spiritual account, with no literal meaning, which Thleale rightly seems to not trust but why would the humans not be transformed into angels? This question is not considered at all by Pleely, and in particular regarding the hierarchy of creation would easily defeat any notion of the great chain of being. If humans were transformed into angels as a punishment, then angels would not be viewed as higher than humans any longer. But that is not what occurs. Perhaps there is a theological explanation for this question, but the higher status of humans seems to be left not entirely unrooted in this domain. The stories of the ants and the hoopoe are fascinating, and due to their prominence in the Quran, after all, the surah involving these stories is named the ants, deserve careful attention. Many of the points Thlili draws from these passages, however, rests on a very literal interpretation. Did these stories actually occur? One of the exegetes she examines, Ibn Kathir, seems to wrestle with this question partially. Some people he describes as those who are ignorant among people argued there was a time period when all animals could speak, and then a time period when they could not. His argument is relatively acceptable, then it would make the surah useless by singling out Solomon as a special human being for his ability to hear these animals. Perhaps it is not even a question for these medieval exegetes, but especially in a modern context, where other religions are questioning the literalness of certain accounts in their sacred writings, this question is left lingering and deserves at least some attention by Pleeley. While it may seem trivial due to the lesser amount of writing devoted by Plili to it, Plili's argumentation on Christianity in particular deserves much greater nuance. This is primarily due to her reliance on referencing the great chain of being and Hellenistic thought as being key factors in the intellectual formation of the medieval exegetes she surveys. If these notions, which she points out have a central home in patristic and medieval Christian thought, are actually more complicated than they may initially seem, perhaps a re-evaluation of how these medieval exegetes approach the Islamic tradition is in order. To begin, it should be mentioned that Christianity is likewise striving for a similar ecocentric reading of the Bible in the 21st century, which is reflected in modern books such as the problem of animal pain, a theodicy for all creatures great and small and all God's animals, a Catholic theological framework for animal ethics. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, a modern summary of Catholic Church beliefs, an entire section is devoted to respect for the integrity of creation and in particular animals. In addition, patristic period Christian writers such as Basil of Caesarea, a Byzantine bishop from the 4th century, are well known for preaching on animals, as reflected in the short excerpt below. Not only among the large animals is it possible to see his inscrutable wisdom, but even among the smallest it is possible to find no less marvels, so too, in the constitution of the animals I do not admire the huge elephant more than the mouse, which is formidable to the elephant, or then the very fine sting of the scorpion, which the craftsman hollowed out like a tube so that through it the poison is injected into the stone. Basil goes on after this excerpt to defend the many animals people may not like, snakes, mosquitoes, and the like. Modern scholarship has acknowledged this fact, and some scholars, such as Paul Cret a University of Pennsylvania professor from the late 1800s and early 1900s, goes so far as to say in Christian art animal forms have always occupied a place of far greater importance than was ever accorded to them in the art of the pagan world. Why is this the fact? He goes on to argue that animals provided an easy way of representing virtues and references the tradition of direct study of nature and animals reflected in particular in medieval Christian writings such as those of Albertus Magnus, a 13th century German-Dominican friar, Who devoted thousands of pages of his writings to animals. The above arguments should serve at the very least to show that a more nuanced position is possible for Christianity than Thleely seems to show. That is not to say she is entirely wrong about the Christian tradition, who she references more than once through Aquinas. Cleely will argue that for Aquinas, human superior status warrants those other animals be killed for their sake, and that Aquinas derives this conviction mainly from Aristotelian ideology. That is not the complete picture of Aquinas, however. Aquinas mentions animals nearly four thousand times, and it would be impossible in a short book review to survey all of these occasions, when that is especially not a central element of Clelie's arguments. However, upon examining where Aquinas spends most of his time reflecting on animals, any careful observer will notice that Aristotle's commentaries are central, specifically de anima and de sensu et sensei. Considering the importance of the Hellenistic thought for Clelie's analysis of her four Muslim exegetes, This raises the question of whether there is more to the picture than just a great chain of being. From the Christian reception of Hellenistic thought, it seems this is indeed true. Aquinas emphasizes, for example, that some men are worse than animals, basing this on Hellenistic thought. He affirms the spirits of wickedness because the higher one's nature is, the more terrible and pernicious it is when one turns to evil. Whence the philosopher states that an evil man is worse than all the animals. Thus he says the spirits of wickedness, since they are spiritual and most wicked. He says, evil, because according to the philosopher in the politics, when a man acts according to reason, he is the best of animals, but when he stoops to wickedness, he is the worst, for if he falls away because of cruelty, no beast is as cruel. Hence he says that an evil man is ten thousand times worse than an evil beast. There are certainly other locations where Aquinas will turn instead to the Bible to base a more nuanced view of animals, such as arguing for natural rights for animals, the right which we call natural, is common to us and other animals, a view of dominion that is carefully restricted, in the state of innocence man's mastership over plants and inanimate things consisted not in commanding or in changing them, and even a universal destination for all things, all other things concur in man's last end, since God is the last end of man and of all other things. The entire universe, with all its parts, is ordained towards God as its end. In one location, even, Aquinas references some Bible verses that provide an interesting, and neglected place in Clelis' account. First, he teaches us to reject solicitude by the animal's example, concerning the first he does four things, first, he has us consider brute animals, second, he points to the lack of worry among them, third, he points to divine providence, fourth, it is argued from these. Therefore, look, i.e., consider, ask the animals, and they will teach you, Job 12:7. For from the consideration of these man learns sometimes, go to the ant, consider her ways and learn wisdom, Prov 6 6-6. Although not the focus of her book, it would have been beneficial for the reader to see alternative paths for animal rights in other religions, especially the methodology of those doing the same work as Thlili do in their respective domains. Thlili is not afraid to turn away from the Quran in some sections, and this is a strength of many of her arguments. However, there seems to be more to the medieval reception of the concept of the great chain of being in the Christian tradition, which leads to the further question of whether there is similar variance in the Islamic tradition two other areas where further elaboration would have been particularly helpful are in the domain of two traditional debates. What exactly is life, and what exactly is language? For a book about animals in particular, the first question may seem obvious in regard to its importance. cleely does engage partially with this question when discussing the topic of Jainism, and considering the many modern debates which involve questions of the animality of viruses, bacteria, and extraterrestrial life, these seem to be pertinent questions religious believers need to tackle. What exactly does the Quran even say are animals? There are the medieval discussions of celestial bodies, which, just by revolving naturally in their orbits, provide service to humans, they do not have to go out of their way to be of service to them. This is an area where there was indeed discussion, and engaging with it on a deeper level would likely have aided Fleely's argumentation, as many people may simply not be willing to grant her degree of equality she argues for to an amoeba. In addition, she has no qualms about categorizing animals. Which may even suggest some sort of hierarchy, but relegates this to an appendix. To touch briefly on the debate regarding language, Cleely does bring this up, especially referencing Ab Sa'id al Sarafi, writing in the 900s, who says that faculty with which man conceives the object of reason, the thoughts that arise in his soul in the process of understanding, which are called internal nuk, and the expression lent by the tongue to the thoughts of the mind, which is called external nuk. Yet, an exact answer is not proposed for what language is and many do consider it a criteria for rationality which in turn is an attribute animals do not all possess in the same way. Considering modern scientific research into the many ways animals can communicate with each other, this would have been an interesting subject to bring up in greater depth, how do ants and hoopoe birds seem to communicate from the biological perspective. Pleely provides a robust, academic treatment of the topic of animals in not only the Quran, but the Islamic tradition as well. This is a key strength of her book, which does not shy away from utilizing Hadith alongside the Quran, and modern and medieval scholars alike. She certainly succeeds in making animals in the Quran seem more important than many would imagine, through not simply the stories of animals in the Quran, but the stories of humans as well. Through contextual information of other religions, she reinforces the contrasts between Islam and Christianity, Judaism, Jainism, and Buddhism and keenly points out the interaction between medieval Muslim exegetes and the Hellenistic tradition that interacted with Christianity and Judaism as well. However, animals still do not rise to the level of humans or angels, especially considering the many unanswered questions she leaves. What exactly are animals, and should one consider a noble angel and a destructive virus to be the same? What about the ultimate destiny of animals? Will they really rise to the same heights as humans in heaven, and for eternity? and what is the next step for Muslims living in the 21st century? Many live debates center around biomedical research and agribusiness, that she references towards the beginning, but also around veganism and the ethics of having pets. Nevertheless, one should indeed come away seeing animals as psychologically complex beings and conceding that the Quran values all species far more than is usually imagined.